Welcome to Do I Need My Record podcast brought to you by In Her Name Foundation. I am Cindy Swain, your host, and this is episode number nine. Whoa, Bessie. It's about dairy cows and basketballs. Yep, you heard that right. Dairy cows and basketball. I could have called this episode Woe, Fuzz, Roan, Simpy, Tupper, or Titter because those were also some of the names of the dairy cows my grandparents, Lou and Lottie Yelkin, milked on their 200-acre subsistence farm in south-central Nebraska near Riverton from the 1940s to the 1970s. Two times per day, 365 days a year, no sick leave, no vacation through snow, rain, piercing wind, and heat. 30 head of cows, two times a day. The farm days started early, before 5 a.m. Lou would carry the buckets and the milker up from the basement to the barn and then send Pat, one of many border collies, to fetch the herd. 15 to 20 minutes later, you could see a cloud of dust, the cows on their way. They would line up in the corral by the door, in the order they were to be milked. Lottie would open the swinging door, calling them each by name. Remarkably, they knew their names and knew their order. The cow would head to the open stanchion, head first into a pile of feed between two wooden slats. Lou would slide the slat over, locking it in place, then apply kickers or hobbles for safety. This allowed him to hook the milkers up to the udder without fear of being kicked. They milked two cows at a time. When the milker bucket was full, Lou would pour the milk into two five-gallon buckets. Lottie would carry the buckets out the barn door to the opposite side of the barn and pour each bucket one at a time into the cooler where they stored the milk until the truck came to get it on its weekly run. Then she would fill the open stanchions with more grain, return the buckets, and resume her position at the door, calling the cows in name by name, one by one. It was organized, diligent, patient, methodical. It was a way of life, their way of life, forgiving and plentiful at times and unforgiving and difficult at times. Everything they did on that farm, from gardening vegetables, selling watermelon and cantaloupe as a summer crop, raising chickens, gathering eggs, raising hogs, and milking, was their subsistence. Much of that without any modern conveniences. They went from using a wood stove for heat to forced air furnace, They had a party line, telephone line that serviced several families at the same time. They knew who was on the phone and who needed to answer the phone by the coded ring from the operator. If you needed to use it, you had to wait your turn or interrupt the conversation. They used a windmill to generate electricity until the Rural Electric Authority put in power lines. They were off the grid, wanting to be on the grid. Today, in 2023, ironically... We're all on the grid, trying to get off the grid. I also grew up thinking there was only one radio station, and that was KFRM, dialed in and locked on my grandfather's truck radio and the radio in the farmhouse. The farm report and an occasional country music song sprinkled in. 
It was on that farm in South Central Nebraska where I learned about hard work, unrelenting hard work and sacrifice. In 1971, Lou forgot to put kickers on one of the cows before hooking up the milker. He was kicked hard, several ribs were broken, a lung punctured, landing him in the hospital for two weeks. Then he needed several more weeks of recovery at home before he could resume farm duties. Lottie forged ahead, running the farm and milking. Yes, milking with the assist from one of her best friends, Margie Bergman. Two women, not strong or big in stature, but strong-willed and resilient. For my grandmother Lottie, when things were hard, she forged ahead because she had to. In subsistence farming, the farm sustains you if you sustain the farm. And that is resilience. Okay, so that's the dairy part. You're probably still wondering, how does that relate to basketball? Well, the answer, Lynn Altoff, my guest for this podcast, that's how. Lynn is a fourth-generation farmer from western Michigan. She grew up around cattle and dairy farming, learning about hard work and sacrifice and resilience. It is that resilience that defines Lynn today. Lynn also grew up in a basketball family. Her mother, a coach and collegiate player, taking Lynn to the gym as an infant. Lynn dreamed of playing college basketball like her mother and earning a collegiate varsity letter and also winning a national championship. Then injuries started to pile up. When Lynn injured her right arm, she taught herself how to play basketball with her left. Hard work, sacrifice, resilience. In this interview, Lynn walks us through her journey, a journey with a path that veers, stops, changes directions, starts completely over, but sustains itself with her resilience. So have a listen and learn how dairy cows and basketball go together. podcast, my guest is Lynn Altoff. Welcome, Lynn. Thank you for having me. Lynn is currently a animal science PhD student at Michigan State University. Uh, she just told me she last weekend uh, graduated with her master's degree. Yep. Okay. And um, she is quite the sports fanatic and has a very interesting story to share with us today. So Lynn, Let's talk about where you grow up, how you got into sports, and um, what sports you played. So I grew up in Ferrisburg, Michigan, uh, just north of Grand Haven, um, and from a very young age. I mean, I was born in March, and my mom coached basketball, and so I was in the gym when I was days old. Um, and so I grew up playing basketball, softball, and soccer, um, ran cross-country a couple years in middle school. Um, and when I got to high school, I made a decision uh, had to make a decision between soccer and softball and chose mm -hmm. softball. Um, but I had some injuries that kind of prevented me from playing softball. So my main sport in, uh, 
high school was basketball. So let's go back to your eighth grade year because that's when you first injured your shoulder. Yeah, yeah. So it was actually the very last day of seventh grade. Um, We had a softball tournament at our high school and my mom was our coach. And so uh, when it comes to softball, when you're in a tournament setting, you either play the number of innings or you play to a timer. And uh, the timer had two minutes left and we needed to get this girl out um, in order to start the next inning. And we were down by one. And so um, I was pitching and uh, I needed to throw a strike. And so I had thrown and I felt something pop and I looked over at my mom and I'm like, something's not right. And she's like, uh, you have two minutes to get this girl out. Like, keep going keep going yeah and she she didn't realize like anything was wrong you know we were in the moment and we now joke about it later like that was mother of the year award right there you know (laughs) um so yeah I felt something pop and um and I yeah so you had to have surgery after that right yeah put it back together something happened in your shoulder you tore your labrum and the capsule around your shoulder I did yeah so um it took a little while to kind of get things laid out. I mean, I was still playing basketball and softball. I wasn't pitching anymore. Um, Mm -hmm. I played shortstop after that. Um, But then my eighth grade spring break, I had um, shoulder surgery. And so got the got the capsule fixed, uh, but the doctor actually missed the labrum tear. And so I had to go back in with a new doctor and he fixed the labrum tear for that one. Um, So, So, you know, you just kept cruising along in, in middle school and then got to high school and injuries continued. I played junior varsity as a freshman and then got moved up to varsity um, throughout that year and then played varsity basketball my last three years. Um, and each after each of those seasons, I had a shoulder injury, I had a knee injury, um, and things just kept tearing. Every time I got hurt. Um, we had an MRI and something was tore. And so we are like, okay, what is going on? Mm -hmm. Like none of my other siblings really had any injuries at that point. And we had went to the doctor and they had diagnosed me with EDS. And EDS is Ehlers-Danlos syndrome, which is a, a syndrome where your joints are really lax and all the cartilage that connect and all the connective tissue around your joints is soft. So it really predisposes you to injury. Yeah. And yeah. That things was, tear. <laughs> right. Things just tear. Yep. And unfortunately, that you had an injury your junior year in high school, which kind of ended your yeah. basketball hopes. Talk yeah. about that. Yeah. So I was being recruited to play college basketball um, and had it narrowed down to five schools, but hadn't made a decision yet. And it was. And which schools were those? Um, there were division two and then, uh, a couple college out of state. Mm -hmm. Um, and so I was playing high school basketball and we had about three games left of the season and, uh, it was a close game at the end and I went up and shot and got fouled. They didn't call the foul, but the paper got that like right when I got a picture right when she was hitting my arm down and back and just tore everything out in my shoulder. Um, and then tore my scapula muscles too. And that's ultimately what ended it. Um, I had, I had shoulder surgery to repair the labrum, um, and the capsule. And I just remember going to the doctor and after that surgery and asking, you know, when can I get back in the gym and shoot with my left hand? And I would think I was still in the sling in my right Mm -hmm. arm at that point. And 
just ready to get back in the gym and shoot, sure. you know, and I had through all these injuries, I had gotten pretty good with my left hand and some of the games, my parents would know how I was feeling, whether I got up to the free throw line and shot my left or my right hand. You That's know? pretty amazing. That's- yeah. So, um, we kind of joke about that, but he had just said like, Lynn, you're done. And I think I just broke down in tears. Yeah. Because when the doctor said that to you, you're done, yeah. that meant you could no longer play basketball. Yeah. He told me I would never step foot on the court again. And how did, how did that feel to you? Yeah, it was, it was heartbreaking. Um, that was was. what I knew. I mean, I was in the gym every day. I was competing with my sister who also played basketball. And your mom played basketball at Grand Valley State University. Yes. We just grew up around the game and that's, that's who I thought I was, you know, and I now have learned later, you know, I'm a child of God. I'm not defined by what I do. Mm -hmm. Um, but at that time I was like, okay, that's how everybody looks at me. Like I am an athlete and, um, I didn't know what to do. You know, I didn't go in the gym. I went from being in the gym every day, playing with my sister, you know, because you, you didn't, you couldn't handle being in the gym. It's not that you couldn't go there, but it was just too emotional for you after that. Yeah. Walking in the gym. I mean, it just brought back all the memories of playing with my friends and playing with my family. And, um, it was really tough for the first two weeks. And, you know, the best thing for me though, was to get back in the gym and help start coaching and, um, encouraging my sister and different things like that. Yeah. Because you told me that you, your sister replaced you. They pulled her up from the junior varsity and then you started, uh, it didn't stop you. You started coaching junior varsity and helping out with the basketball team. How did that transition go for you? My senior year, um, obviously I wasn't gonna be able to play basketball and, um, we had a really awesome junior varsity coach who was actually my AAU coach to Corky Nyson. Um, and she had just asked me, you know, like, I want you to be a part of my staff. She didn't have an assistant coach. And so I uh, was her assistant coach and it was just life-changing for me. That was kind of my first coaching opportunity. Um, And just to invest in people. I was their post coach um, and I really just enjoyed investing in those players and getting to know them and help them reach their goals. Um, But at that same time, I was still going to varsity practices. I was a captain on the team still um, and really just trying to help that team be successful. And I was really thankful my senior night that day. um, It was always mine and my sister's goal to play together. Mm -hmm. And we had always mapped it out like she was going to be a sophomore. I was going to be a senior. And we were just really looking forward to that season. And so part of the emotional part when... uh, my basketball career was taken. You realized that wasn't going to happen. Yeah. Yeah, we did. And so my, um, varsity coach was like, what do you think if we suited you up? And we were playing Granville and I'm just so thankful, um, for the Granville staff and honestly just the community, because I got to play for two minutes and 15 seconds on senior night and got to start with my sister. And so I'm not sure if there was a dry eye in the stands. Um, it was a very emotional, yeah, yeah, it was very emotional. Um, and one of the things I prided myself in as a player was doing all the, um, maybe the stuff that wasn't all in the spotlight, you know, I was, uh, I think I'm still in the record books for rebounds, you know, but mm-hmm. like rebounding hustle plays, that kind of stuff. Um, and that, that's what, when recruiting, that's what a lot of coaches yeah. look for is they want that team player. They want that player that they know they can put in 
it's going to know their role. Yeah, absolutely. And be able to execute what they ask you to do. Yeah. So that night was super special. Um, I know everybody wanted me to score and I had shot a couple times and I was limited to my left hand, obviously with the injury. Um, but it was super special that night because I had gotten a rebound and I had gotten an assist, uh, to my sister. And so, so that was very special. Book. I made it in the stat book. Yeah. So that was a special night. Um, and I'm just very thankful for all the coaches that made that possible. And I think coaches can really learn a lot about themselves and their team when they handle situations like that. Because I did a podcast, it's episode six called Beyond and Above with Doreen Ingalls. Yeah, yeah. And she's an amazing coach and you know her. Yes, I do. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. One of the things that they do before the start of every single game, if there's a player on the opposing team that's out for injury that player gets an unopposed shot under the basket. And then the, the St. Ignace team or the LaSalle high school team does the same. Yeah. And that happened the night I was there. There was a, a kid from Ingadine mm-hmm. uh, that was on crutches and he crutched his way out to the court. He made an uncontested shot under the basket. And then someone from the LaSalle high school team did the same. So before it even tipped, it was two, two, it was two, two. And I looked at Doreen and I said to her, I go, do you do that every time? She goes, every game. Yeah. Because we want everybody to be a part of the game. And I think that's what coaching should do. And I I think that rewards kids like you, especially just the, the not quit attitude, the resiliency that it just never set you back because you just knew that there was still something there for you, even though you couldn't play. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. That speaks highly of you. Thank you. When did you get diagnosed with Ehlers-Danlos syndrome? Yeah. So that diagnosis came after the scapula surgery, uh, my junior year. So I mean, high school. Yeah. So I was, my athletic career was over by this point and we were just trying to figure out like, why do things keep tearing, Mm. you know? And so, um, I believe it was my physical therapist kind of encouraged me to go to this doctor in Muskegon and, he had, he's since retired, but he had diagnosed me with EDS and like so many things just started to make so much sense, Mm -hmm. you know, and you read online about different symptoms and stuff. And there's a wide range of EDS. There is. Um, some kids have it or some people have it and they might have some mild symptoms, like maybe some knee pain, but not all the tears. And then you're probably more on the other severe end where any minimal exertion or kind of an extreme movement. Yeah. When most people would be fine, will cause an actual Tear, tear of the connective yeah. tissue around your joints. Yeah. Yeah. So we got that diagnosis and, um, I wouldn't say it really changed who I was. I think I've, re- I've been added to a couple of groups with different EDS people. And I mean, they drastically changed their lives for it. And, you know, I'm just like, I'm just going to embrace it. And yeah. so, and you have, I mean, absolutely. Thank with, you. Without a doubt. Um, yeah. Because you move on to college, you, you ended up going to Michigan state university. I did. Yeah. Because why? Yeah, so because you 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 were planning on playing Division two basketball. Yep, you knew yeah, that wasn't an option. You're being recruited, and so you had to make some life decisions. Yeah, how did you end up at Michigan State University? Yeah, so you know my basketball career ended, and I'll be honest, I was probably going to college to play basketball. Um, and when that was kind of taken from me, I had to make a decision. Okay, was I going to go to a school because of basketball, but not actually get to play? And they didn't have the major that I wanted, which was agriculture and dairy. Or was I going to go to a school that actually had what I wanted and could advance my career? And so my parents really encouraged me to 
to just go look at Michigan State. And I was like, there's no way I'm going to Michigan State. You know, it's way too big. And um, I just remember the conversation that I had with Dr. Joe Domek at MSU, who's the uh, dairy education coordinator. Mm -hmm. And him and my parents and I, we met at the dairy. Uh, It was during my senior year. Of high school. Of high school, Mm -hmm. yeah. And he was telling me about the opportunities that I could have at MSU. And I was like, okay, this is the place for me. And just tell me again about the story that really touched your heart about, about him. Joe. Yeah. So when I walked in, you know, he really made me feel like family. And one of the things that, I mean, my injury was still very much a part of me and seeing Joe walk in with a cane and him telling me his story about being in car accident and, I just knew that he could relate to me and that he was going to be there for me. Um, And because he knows what it's like to deal with a disability. Absolutely. And then still move forward. Absolutely. And he could support me kind of through this journey. Mm -hmm. So I knew that he was going to be another kind of father figure to me. And I was just very thankful um, to be able to be in his program. And then also during your undergraduate time, you got connected with the Michigan State University basketball program. Yeah. You knew you weren't going to play. Yeah. But they welcomed you in. Tell us about that position that you had. So I was super thankful for uh, Susie Merchant and her staff for kind of welcoming me right into the MSU basketball family right from the beginning. And they knew you weren't going to play. Yeah, they knew that. But they knew about you, about the person that you are and the skills that you had in basketball. Um, and so I started my freshman year as a manager for three weeks. And, uh, then I had an opportunity to be the recruiting operations assistant with, uh, coach Maria Fantana Rosa. And she had just started at MSU, um, and she was in the recruiting role and, um, they kind of knew that I had been through the recruiting process and they, they knew who I was and they had offered me to move into that role. And I was just extremely thankful. Um, it was awesome to work with Maria and the whole staff. I mean, Dean, Kristen, uh, Susie, I mean, just everybody there, they, they just welcomed me with open arms and they valued my opinion. Um, and they just appreciated my hard work. So I, I yeah, enjoyed and it. I think, you know, you talked earlier, it, 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 you know, the sport you play doesn't define the person that you are. Right. And they know that yes. they knew that at the time. Yeah. Because as you graduated from undergraduate, then something really, one of your life goals happened. Yeah. So I had kind of two goals, um, when I was in high school and those two goals were to win a national championship and to get a collegiate varsity letter. And, you know, as a high schooler, I thought both of those were going to happen on the basketball court. I didn't think there was any other way that you could achieve those without being on the basketball court. And, Um, My Dairy Challenge team at MSU, we won a national championship, so I was able to check that box off. Um, And then Coach Merchant really lobbied for me um, in order to get my varsity S jacket through MSU, um, just through my dedication and my work with the program. And so I was super thankful for her kind of going out of her way to advocate for me um, to get that. And so I got to achieve that goal as well. I'm just a little curious. So tell us about the Dairy Championship award uh championship how did that yeah what do you have to do to get that yeah so it's it's kind of an intense program at msu um the whole dairy challenge started here at msu um back in like the 90s mm-hmm. and so it's a contest where you have a team of four and you go into on onto a dairy and you evaluate it and so you look at the feed area you look at the milking you look at the cows you let the cows kind of lead you mm-hmm. um and you find three strengths 
from the dairy and then you find some opportunities for that producer um, to make more money to advance their herd to improve their health just to just so to make their dairies overhaul. around michigan so we have an internal dairy challenge which are uh dairies around michigan and mm-hmm. then there's a regional dairy challenge that is around the midwest mm-hmm. and then there's a national dairy challenge that's anywhere so anywhere our dairy US. was um, I believe in Wisconsin that year. So it kind of rotates throughout the year. So US. you're working with just one dairy during the time? During, yeah, you evaluate one dairy um, for each contest. Okay. Yep. So your championship came from a, a Wisconsin dairy? Yes, it did. Yeah. I think that's really fascinating. I told you that uh, I'm a farm, farm girl at heart because yeah. my grandparents had a small subsistence farm in south central Nebraska and they were dairy farmers. Yeah. And I don't think I've ever seen my grandfather and grandmother, two harder working people than those two, because when you're in dairy farming, it's 365 days a year, twice a day. Yeah. And, or you have to get someone to substitute for you. That just has to happen. Yep. And the thing that we talked about was I asked you, you seem so resilient. And through all of this, you just kept moving forward. You looked at what happened and said to yourself, well, this is what I can do now. It didn't mm-hmm. stop you from attaining your goals. You still met your goals. And you shared with me that you think that some of that resiliency came from dairy farming. Yeah. Talk about that. Yeah. So I had an incredible opportunity uh, to kind of be born into a farming family, you know, and my grandparents had a 60 cow pasture dairy in West Michigan. And I spent every summer at their farm. You know, me and my cousins, we grew up uh, running around the farm and then helping with the hay. And uh, we were a part of 4-H and FFA and that kind of stuff. And so we always had a cow on a halter, breaking them for the fair or goats or anything like that. And so I do think a lot of my resiliency kind of came from the farm. I mean, there are things on the farm that okay, someone's got to put the hay up, you know, someone's got to do this and no one was going to do it for you. And so I think you have to, even though it's hard, you have to do it. Yeah. And I think sometimes that in resiliency with kids that don't have a situation where they don't have a choice, they have to do something difficult. Yeah. Um, They don't get enough opportunity, I think, these days to do that. Mm -hmm. So they tend to lose that ability to be resilient. Yeah. And, you know, that just, you have had how many surgeries now? Five shoulder surgeries, two knee surgeries, and two ankle surgeries. And yet again, you're having another one in a week to yeah. repair the the muscle attachments to your scapula. Yeah. Yep. And through all of that, look how successful you are. Thank you. You graduated. You got a varsity letter from the women's basketball program. You finished your master's and now you're on to your PhD. Yeah. Yep. That, that just speaks so highly of you about that resiliency and what an example for other young women that they can look at you and say, wow, if one can do that, then I can do it too. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's another thing is to get kids these days to look a little bit outside themselves. Right. At the bigger picture. Right. Absolutely. So you are now in your first year or just beginning your first year your PhD. Right. Yep. What do you hope to do with that? Yeah. You know, there's so many opportunities within the, within the dairy industry. Well, first tell us, 
exactly what your area of expertise, a little bit more information about that. Cause you're in, in dairy science. Yes. Yep. So I'm in dairy science, um, specifically focusing on dairy management type questions. So I really enjoy answering questions that producers ask every day. And I'm just going to add this little caveat because I got asked the other day if eggs were dairy <laughs> and I said, no, that would be chicken. Uh, so <laughs> just explain, you know, if you can give us a definition of dairy. Yeah. Yeah. So dairy um, would be cows. Right. Right. Milk cows. Milk cows. <laughs> yeah. And um, it's one of the biggest agriculture industries in Michigan. And so we're really fortunate. We um, Michigan is the number one industry or the number one um, state for milk per cow. So we have very really? efficient cows here in Michigan. Um, what do and you I attribute think that, that to? I think that goes back to the producers we have. We have super eager producers um, to kind of hit that next level. Um, and they're very excited about what they do. They want to do it right. Um, and do you think that that is because maybe they work with Michigan State and, you know, they're learning things from your research and from some of the things that you do out in the field? Yeah. And I, I think they're very interested in the research we're doing. Um, and a lot of our research, and I'll get into my research a little bit later, but a lot of our research connects with these producers within our industry. And I mm -hmm. think a lot of it also goes back to a lot of producers in Michigan are somehow connected to Joe and Michigan State through the dairy program. Mm -hmm. um, and we, again, when we're talking about dairy, we're talking about milk cows, cheese, and everything that goes along with milk yep. product. Yeah, absolutely. Now I have a question. Now do most dairies, do they now just produce milk and different dairies are designated for cheese or other products or does everybody just produce milk and then after they get it transported somewhere then that agency decides what to do with it yeah so we have something called milk co-ops um and so the big ones here in michigan we have uh michigan milk producers association dairy farmers of america and then prairie farms those are kind of your big ones here in michigan uh there's other ones too mm -hmm. but you kind of ship to a co-op or you might be processing on your farm there. I mean, we have some producers here in Michigan who are processing ice cream and cheese right on their, their, their farms and they're producing right there. Um, but a lot of times they're going to go to a co-op and then the co-op will send them either to a cheese plant or a bottling, um, thing wherever like that. the need is. Yeah. Yep. Okay. So tell us a little bit more about your research. What are you looking at in dairy science? Yeah. So as a PhD student. So my two master's projects, um, really focused on management type questions that producers are asking every day. And so my first question was whether a Jersey or Holstein dairy cattle, which are two different breeds of dairy. Right. Okay. A Jersey is brown. Yeah. Yeah. I do know that. <laughs> yeah. Um, and my grandfather always said that they had the best milk. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, and then you Holstein are the white and black spotted cows that you see a lot of. Yes. Yeah. So I was set out to determine which one was more profitable and why. Um, and a lot of that kind of comes back to their, um, milk components. And so jerseys produce a higher concentration of butter, fat, and protein in their milk. Mm -hmm. Um, whereas Holsteins, they produce a higher volume, a greater volume of milk, but less, concentration. So less percent of those butter fats and proteins. Um, and what are you looking in a producer? What do you want? Do you want more volume or do you want more protein and butter fat? 
there's a lot of different research and I mean, I could go on a little rabbit hole here, but, (laughs) um, jerseys are really good at producing cheese because of their protein, Mm -hmm. their protein. There's something in their protein that just really helps the coagulation of cheese. Um, and so you want jerseys for cheese production for sure, but obviously there's an economic piece of this. And so, um, the manufacturing plants, they need to incentivize Jersey cheese, um, through a financial incentive, right, mm-hmm. in order to get that Jersey cheese. But ultimately, in the dairy industry, um, producers are being paid off of pounds of components. And so because the the Holstein is producing a greater volume of milk, they're ultimately shipping more pounds of protein and fat off the dairy each day okay. compared to a Jersey, although they have the higher concentrations. Gotcha. So okay. with that, we found that Holsteins are more profitable. Um, but I mean, this is a question that producers ask their nutritionists, like, Hey, which one's more profitable? Like I'm going to expand, which one should I expand with? Well, yeah, because the dairy industry is really competitive. Yeah. And markets are always changing. And so they're always trying to find that, Mm -hmm. that niche within the industry. This is a question I have, and this is a little off the topic, but I'm just curious, how has, uh, the alternate milk market, such as almond, coconut, oat milk, how has that impacted the dairy? I think one of the biggest things is, you know, milk, dairy milk has 13 essential nutrients. Mm -hmm. And that's something that the oat and almond and those kinds of juices, I like to call them, they don't have that because they don't have the milk components um, that a a mammal, a cow, a goat can produce, you know, so. um, As far as consumption, though. Um, ha- has it affected the amount of dairy that people are utilizing now? Yeah. With that so, alternative choice, with those alternative choices? Yeah. So we've seen, and I don't know if it's directly attributed to those alternative sources, um, but I do know that our consumption of fluid milk in the U.S. has gone down, but our consumption of cheese has really gone up. Mm-hmm. Um, so, I mean, and that kind of stuff you can't really make out of almond milk no you, you know can't. so <laughs> you can try i've had it yeah <laughs> it's just very different it so. is very different yeah okay um so you're still looking at in your research you know components of milk and then when you're done with your phd where do you see yourself a couple of years down the road what do you want to be doing with that a lot of my PhD project, it's still going to be focused on the management type questions, but uh, focusing on expansion because a lot of our small producers are kind of being run out. I mean, our dairy industry has changed a lot over the past 10, 20 years or so. Oh, it's changed a lot over the last 50, 60 years because you don't have those small subsistence yes. farmers anymore, like my, per se, my grandparents. Were. Right. Everything on the farm they raised, whether it be the garden or the pigs or the chickens, eggs, dairy, that was their livelihood. They did not have an outside income. Right. That's- yeah. So we're really seeing a change in the dairy industry. And so my main PhD project is going to look at different methods for small dairy producers to expand and remain viable within the industry because mm-hmm. I obviously have a soft spot in my heart for small producers coming from our small dairy. But I think there's a place in the industry for small and large producers. And I want to be able to help those small producers remain viable. So how do you define like a a, a small producer versus a large, because some of those farms milk 
like 24 seven. Yeah. They just have it constantly. Now what's the, what, just give us numbers. Yeah. So I think based on the USDA, a small farm is less than 500 cows. Um, and okay. that's really changed, you that's know, changed because my, I'm considering, you know, my grandparents milked 30 head. Yes. Roughly. Yeah. Yeah. You're really getting out of the, the producers who are milking less than a hundred cows, mm-hmm. um, unless they're maybe show cows and they have maybe additional revenue or something, but you really don't see many producers that are milking under a hundred cows. And then how big are some of the biggest dairy farms? in Michigan like how many oh boy many head uh, there's several thousand head dairies here in Michigan um, but then you get down south Texas uh, that area I mean you could have 15,000 cow dairies uh, down wow. there that's so just, that's a lot it's crazy the Colorado out out in that area they're kind of moving out in that direction as well Idaho that that mm-hmm. type of area mm-hmm. so yeah so I want to go back to um, something you told me earlier, that for the longest time when you were growing up, you felt like sports defined you, was yeah. who you are. Mm-hmm. But yet you've moved on graciously and done extremely well. Do you still think that defines you in some way, sports? So that's a great question. And Yeah. When I was growing up, I mean, sports was what I did 24 seven, you know, and so that kind of defined me who I was. And I don't think it defines me anymore. I think people see me as an athlete still, you know, I probably haven't played sports in seven years now, you know, Mm -hmm. but I think people still see me as an athlete. Um, but that's not who I am. I am a child of God Mm -hmm. and I know who I am through my faith. And that is the one thing that has gotten me through this, this Mm -hmm. whole process and continues to inspire me to kind of move on to the next. So, yeah. And I, I've always said this to people that I have around me is, is to not let your limitations stop you. Yeah. Um, they're, they're not in stops, right? There's so much more you can do out with that because you're such an example of for young people, resiliency um because we need that in life we need to know that it's okay to fall down Mm -hmm. pick yourself back up dust off it you might not be going the same direction that you were originally but there's so many other ways you can go to move forward yeah and that's it's exciting to see you do that because i think you started college with a completely different idea yeah there's a little video out uh, about Lynn produced by the Michigan State University Women's Basketball Program. And you were going to just go back to your family farm, yeah. which is not to say that that's not a good option. Right, right. But you've also just gone head on into a lot of opportunities. And look at you now. Yeah. All these years, you're working on a PhD. Yeah. And you shared with me you'd like to teach someday. Yeah, because you're a little still limited with some of the vigorous work that it takes to be on a farm Mm -hmm. because of your EDS. Yeah, I think that's something that's changed throughout my uh, college experience. You know, I I began this as a two year student, right? Like two years and I'm going home and now it's changed to, you know, I kind of like nutrition. I like teaching. How can I invest in people? And so I have a lot of opportunities out there, whether it be teaching or nutrition or anything like that. Very good. Well, I know you've listened to all the other podcasts. Thank you for your diligence. And you understand how we came up with, do I need my racket? Mm -hmm. 
Um, it's a metaphor for a lot of things, and it's something different for everyone. And, you know, for me, as I've said before, it you know, gave me purpose, gave me meaning. Mm-hmm. And a racket is life. You swing at something you completely miss, or you swing, you hit it head on, away you go. Yeah. So, Lynn, what would be your racket? What's your racket? Yeah. So I've thought about this one a lot and I've kind of narrowed it down to two words. And I would say my rocket is passion and faith. And those are kind of the two things that have gotten me through this journey. Um, and those would be my rackets. Great. You know, and I can see the passion definitely. And the faith to me is like, you have still maintained that faith in yourself. Faith in myself and faith in God, that there's a bigger purpose. There is a bigger purpose because I think as we look outside of ourselves and look at other people, that gives us a better idea of what's kind of going on in the world. Mm-hmm. Is there anything else you'd like to add or tell those young people out there today about sports and uh, any thoughts you might have to encourage them to hang in there, to be resilient? Yeah, I think um, everybody's going to go through obstacles and it's not about the obstacle you go through or when you go through it. It's how you handle it on the other side. And um, I'm thankful to have the support system that I do have to get me through these obstacles and keep my mindset straight and um, focus on the bigger picture. You know, Mm -hmm. I'm not defined by sports and um, there is a plan, there is a purpose and to keep me focused on moving forward Mm -hmm. every day. Um, so it's not whether you're going to go through obstacles or challenges, it's when, it's and, when how you go th- and, yeah, how, yes. and how you handle it. And so I just encourage everybody to make sure that they have that support system and um, know that there's always opportunities out there, although you may not see them right when you think you are. So, Well, if there's ever an example of someone that has been able to master resiliency and move forward that would be you, Lynn. So I thank you so much for speaking with me today. And I absolutely look forward to speaking with you in the future. Thank you. I appreciate you having me. You're welcome. Ehlers-Danlos Syndrome is a genetic connective tissue disorder that affects 1 in 20 to 40,000 people in the U.S. per year. It is a connective tissue disorder that results in softened cartilage, weakened ligaments, and muscle fibers that tear easily with the simplest of movements. It affects people in varying degrees and can even weaken heart muscle fibers, and most live in constant chronic pain. After our interview, I spoke with Lynn about her most recent surgery, a scapular muscle reattachment surgery. Lynn had her right arm fixed in a sling and was only able to take it off for physical therapy and work on one thing, straightening her elbow. Her first comment, I can get my elbow straight now, and I am in so much less pain. It feels much better. She smiled as she described her lengthy rehab process ahead. If Lynn, as I am sure she was, was in any pain during our interview, she never said or complained. Lynn has just continued to embrace it, forging ahead, reaching her goals, an MSU varsity basketball letter, and a national dairy championship. Through injury after injury, tear after tear, surgery after surgery, and daily pain, it has not stopped Lynn, nor will it. Much like my grandmother Lottie Yelkin, taking hits from life, forging ahead without complaint, resilience. 
imagine the courage and bravery it takes to get up every morning knowing it's possible to tear a ligament, a muscle, or cartilage with the slightest movement and be in constant chronic pain. But never complain, forge ahead, not looking back on what could have been, but always looking forward on what could be. That is Lynn Althoff, someone we can all learn from and be inspired by. So now you know how dairy cows and basketball go together. I'd like to thank Tudor Big from Big Sound and Lighting for editing and producing this podcast and for producing the original theme music. For more information about In Her Name Foundation, visit our website at inhernamefoundation.org. Join us on social media, Facebook, Instagram, and subscribe to our newsletter or make a donation. We look forward to meeting all of you again and sharing our next episode of Inspiration. Until then, see you next time and be prepared to bring your racket. <laughs>